What I do hope is that over the months that come, people will email me or send me messages and say that in some small way or hopefully a larger way, that reading the book inspired them to be able to carry on or survive or do better and that there was a real positive change in their life. And if I achieve that, I've achieved everything I want to achieve. Welcome to Screw It, Just Do It, the number one ranked entrepreneurship podcast for business owners, entrepreneurs, and those aspiring to be so. The aim of this show is to showcase the world's most inspiring and interesting people who've decided to screw it, just do it. We offer 20% inspiration and 80% education, giving you the tools and advice to start, grow, and scale a successful business. I'm your host, Alex Chisnell, fellow entrepreneur, podcast agency owner with a number one podcast and startup advisor to global startup generator and early stage VC, Antler. Each week, I release two episodes, a Q&A every Wednesday with one of the world's most inspiring figures, plus a solo episode every Saturday where I cover the challenges that all of us are facing as entrepreneurs. Welcome to another episode of Screw It, Just Do It with me, Alex my very special guest this week, John Cordwell. John is a British entrepreneur, philanthropist, and billionaire. He was born in a terraced house in Stoke-on-Trent and went from bullied child to self-made billionaire, befriending the likes of Sir Elton John, Eva Longoria, Hugh Grant, and Robbie Williams, who've all taken part in his charity balls to raise money for Cordwell children. It was at a car auction in 1987, the height of Mrs. Thatcher's booming Britain, that he spotted the future a mobile phone that came in an unwieldy suitcase. Within two decades, John sold his phones for your business for £1.46 billion. He now shares his life story, love, pain and money, the making of a billionaire in his autobiography. And it retraces the inspirational journey from the very shaky beginnings of his phone empire to owning yachts, private planes, a fleet of top flight cars, a Jacobean mansion in the Midlands and London's most expensive home, which I was privileged to interview him in. His story is a fascinating insight into the drive, ambition, focus and vision required to become a billionaire. John's had to battle endless career misfortunes and overcome a series of personal tragedies to rise to the top. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. So screw it, just do it. John Cordwell. So firstly, thanks for inviting me into your beautiful home here in London. Secondly, congratulations on not only the publication of your autobiography, but I believe your partner Modesta is expecting your second child together as well. She is indeed, yeah. Fantastic. And then thirdly, a very good mutual friend of ours I've just mentioned messaged me last night and said to let you know that I now know three of Stoke's most famous sons, yourself, Robbie Williams, and Piers Lenny, (laughs) (laughs) who was on your your yacht for your birthday, which was last week, I believe. Yeah, it it wasn't actually my yacht. It was a a small cruise ship I chartered. Mine mine is 12 people, and this was 240 Uh. people, so... But I saw yours is about to be used in a movie as well. Is that right? It is, yeah. It's going to be used on The Crown. Well, it's being used now on The Crown. Is it? Yeah. Fantastic. They're, they're filming on there now, which is the the part where Diana and uh, Bayard's son, what was his oh, name? Oh, Dodie. Dodie, yeah, Dodie, yeah, yeah, yeah. Were, uh, were on the, that was on a super yacht just before, of course, that she had that tragic accident. Yeah. Okay. So interesting. So I'm keen to find out the qualities that have made you successful as you have been John so can you talk to me a little bit about confidence and self-esteem it was world mental health day just on Monday and you say in your book I quote you hate to think of all the kids out there who black themselves up because they don't feel that they fit in but as painful as those feelings were I do believe that they also pushed me on pushed me to prove myself as a success in many other ways yeah well I was lucky that my hardships in life had a positive effect on me rather than a negative effect. And not everybody's so lucky. You know, if people if people are bullied or have difficulties in life, often that can be scarring and negative for them rather than positive. I was very lucky that for me it was a positive experience. It was negative at the time, but with a positive outcome. And it taught me a lot about life. I mean, it taught me, for instance, that bullying is a real evil and that it can damage children, damage people, not just children, damage everybody. You know, bullying is a is a, is a dreadful thing in life, and we all must try and remove bullying out of our lives altogether if we can. And along with bullying, of course, is all the prejudices, all the prejudices that people have got about colour or about 
race or about religion, you know, and we, we have to try and get as many prejudices as we possibly can. But coming back to the point, you know, I was very lucky that, that all of this uh, experience in life taught me how not to be without leaving me scarred. And you also mentioned bullying, as you say, but you used it to your advantage. Tell me a little bit about, for those who haven't read the book yet, about your strategy of dares. <laughs> yeah. I always remember in caravan site in Abergelly, uh, one of the very few holidays we ever had, and I was about sort of eight years old, perhaps. And we went to this caravan site and we were staying in this static caravan, a small static caravan. And uh, and I went looking for the playground or what entertainment there was on the site, found this playground. And there was about five or six kids there. And of course, I wanted to be friendly with them and have fun with them. So I went, uh, went sort of sidled over to them. I was quite a shy kid in many respects. You know, I was sort of quite brave, but quite shy and uh, tried to make friends with them. And I got curly ginger hair and lots of freckles. And all of a sudden, the bullying started. You know, these five kids just thought it would be great fun to pick up on, pick on the ginger-headed kid. And they started doing that. And it, of course, made me feel very miserable because I wanted to have fun with them and play. There was no other entertainment on this campsite. And I ended up going back to the caravan, sort of tail between my legs, quite sorry for myself, but also angry with myself that I'd not actually found a solution to that and then I'd almost not quite in a cowardly way but given up mm. and gone back to the caravan so the next day I thought what am I going to do now and I thought well, I'll go back to the playground now in my heart of hearts I was actually hoping the kids wouldn't be there or that there might be a new set of kids that I could get on with yeah and as I approached the playground my heart sank because I saw these kids again and immediately they started the bullying process. You know, it was only name calling. It wasn't it wasn't anything dramatic, but it was hurtful. Mm. You know, it was difficult and hurtful. And that went on. And I thought, what am I going to do with them? And then I came up with this idea. And I said, I challenged them to ride the witch's hat with me. Now, the witch's hat, for those listeners who probably don't know what it is, it was a central pole with a with a big cone that sat on it, pivoted at the top. With seats all the way around. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's quite difficult to describe on air rather than visually. Yeah. But, you know, so these kids all sat on here thinking that I was probably going to push them round like the parents might do. Well, that wasn't my plan. I went inside the witch's hat, put one hand on the struts, the other on the pole, and then started spinning them like holy hell. And as I spun them, I pulled it in and out and I shook them all about. And they were terrified. They were screaming and terrified. <laughs> and after that, we had a great time. <laughs> and, and what I learned was that being tougher than other people or being more courageous than other people influenced them in a positive way. And then they'd see past my ginger hair and freckles and I'd win them over. And I was lucky once again that I'd got those attributes that enabled me to do that because not every kid's got them, you know. So bullying has to be stamped out, but that's the way I coped with it. And I think it gave me this instinct in life that I just always needed to be a winner yeah. and that I needed to always prove myself, always be successful and always be a winner. So I think those experiences in my childhood really helped to create who I was to become. Interesting. And then how old were you then when you told your first wife, Kate, that, that you were going to be a successful businessman? It was very, very early on. She mm. probably thought I was a bit crackish, you know? <laughs> you know. I mean, most of the things I've told people throughout my business career were of what I was going to achieve. You know, even my employees, when I said, when the business nearly collapsed, it was doing 13 million of turnover and the operational infrastructure nearly collapsed. We were profitable, but we hadn't got any infrastructure that could cope with what we were achieving. And I said to all the workforce, there was about 30 or 40 of us at that time, and I said, you know, next year is going to be consolidation. We are going to get every mortal aspect of the operations under control, nailed down, buttoned down, ready for expansion. And that expansion is going to take us to a £250 million turnover within the next four years. And they looked at me as though I was stark raving bonkers. And I didn't actually at that point know how I was going to do it. I just believed I would and I'd find a way. And I actually did it one year earlier than I said. Did and you? And we really? were 250 million turnover within three years of that conversation. But you had that single minded belief, like from within, that you were going to hit those numbers. Yeah. I'd got some fundamental ideas of how to do it, but to take your business from 13 million turnover to 250, when it's all 
hard grit and determination. You've got to ship boxes out. And it, you know, it was pre-internet days. This was all hard one trade. Search, sifting through the yellow pages, setting up new dealers. Old dealers were going bankrupt all the time and you know, it was an ever-changing landscape. So I could sort of see how I was going to do it to an extent, but even to me, it sounded ambitious. But I was determined that that was going to happen. Amazing. And you mentioned in the book that the house you bought in, in Ashbank being the first little break that you got into becoming the businessman you are today. Is that true? Well, it, it helped to finance me. So I forecast that there was going to be a huge rise in the value of property. And I could see this just from mortgage to uh, wages ratios. And, uh, you know, I could really sense that there was going to be this big rise in property. And I, I viewed it to be going to be an exponential rise. I couldn't afford a big mortgage. So I got, I managed to get my guy, my boss at Mitchell Entire Company against his willingness to transfer me into the black department, which was the horrible part of Mitchell where they made all the rubber and they put sulfurous sulfur and oil and carbon black and rubber mixed it all up in a great big Banbury. It was a horrible situation, but I got shift allowance, dirt money, overtime, doubled my income. And that enabled me then to get a mortgage on this. What, what at the time for me was colossal, a four-bedroom detached house in a nice part of Stoke-on-Trent. And uh, sure enough, and fortuitously, I was right with my forecast, and the house doubled in value over the subsequent three years. And so from an £18,000 mortgage, I ended up with a house worth £36,000, and that helped me to set up the businesses. And you also mentioned being in a race against time because your father died young. When did you feel you're able to to slow down, or do you not feel you you slow down? You're taking your your foot off the gas at all? Doesn't feel as though I've slowed down. I was up at five a.m. this morning going over to GMB for an interview. But what I have now is the luxury of being able to slow down if I wish to. I don't particularly wish to because there's still a huge amount to achieve in life. I've got a lot of businesses, property developments here and in, in Antibes. I've got other businesses as well, and I've got all my charity work. And there's a lot to do on the charitable front with Lyme disease, pans, pandas, hundreds of thousands of children out there that desperately need help. So there is so much still to do in life that um, I don't think I can afford the luxury of slowing down, but nor do I think it might suit me very well. Mm. And while I've got my health and my energy, I feel really I need to keep driving forward and and try in my own small way to change whatever bit of the world that I can to improve things. And um, you, you write in the book, I quote, there was a problem though, and that problem was me. I did not stop. I did not rest. I was never satisfied. Yeah. yeah well, that's true. Still true. <laughs> Still true. Well, yeah. you know, I, I help now 15,000 children a year. It's not enough. You know, and even if I was helping 100,000 a year, well, what about the rest of the mm. planet? And I, and I can't stop. You know, the UK economy, what the government have done with the UK economy over the last three years, I'm devastated about because I'm very patriotic. I love Britain. I pay my taxes in Britain. I want Britain to be prosperous. And I've always been very proud of Britain ever since the Maggie Thatcher days. And what's been happening over the last three years in Britain is, is really fine demoralizing. And as a result, I've been fighting very hard in the government for them to do the right things and trying to influence them through media and, and trying to make them change some of the things they're doing for the better. So there's always a cause to fight, really. You know, there's always something to fight for. And do you feel, like, say, this cause, this fight, when it comes to the government, um, and I know you're very passionate about those who don't pay their taxes, certain companies, shall we say, do you feel you are making an impact that people do listen, or do you feel it's just so difficult? Well, I think people listen, and I, I do, without doubt, influence people. But do I influence enough? No, mm. the answer is not. Not okay. enough. You know, if I had a if I had a platform like some of the superstars on social media, you know, and I got hundreds of millions of followers, I think I could make a far bigger difference. You know, so um, could do with being, um, you know, one of the superstars on social media. Like I'm just forgetting a name now. Who's the big one? Um, on social media, got all the Instagram followers. There's two or three of them. But yeah, there's yeah, the, there's going to be. Yeah, who is was it? it the first one that reached the billion, wasn't there? Followers. Yeah. Yeah. Who are the big ones? That was one of the Kardashians, I'm sure. Yeah, Kardashian. Young, that's yeah, it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. If, yeah. if I was the if I was Kim Kardashian, I'd be a lot more successful at influencing the government. Uh, you know, because I'd have a, a big, huge follower base that would mm. influence people. Yeah. So I've not really got enough 
power to make the difference that I'd like to make. Might have the intellectual ability and uh, the credibility, but I don't have enough power. Interesting. And you've you mentioned your you know as long as you've got your health earlier, and and I've read previously, I think last year you mentioned using up your nine lives already. And having read and, and just heard about some of the dares that you used to try as a young boy, obviously not surprised, but last year it wasn't just a dare, but it was a bike accident that you were on holiday in Italy, I believe, which left you fighting for your life after suffering, I believe, 11 broken bones. Do, do you remember much about that? I do. Do you really? I do. I was traumatized by it, actually. It's the only injury I've ever had. I mean, I've broken necks, broken backs, broken everything. I've never been traumatized before. This was the biggest agony I could ever imagine in my life because I'd smashed my collarbone to bits. I'd smashed my shoulder blade to bits. I'd fractured and displaced six ribs, got concussion, blind in one eye, punctured a lung and fractured my hip. And I was in a real agonizing mess gasping at the roadside vision only in one eye feeling really really in agony and um, and they took me off to the italian hospital where i got bodged and poked about this was in florence i was treated with no dignity whatsoever i hadn't got any ability to fight back in any way shape or form not verbally or physically i was in too much agony and i just had to suffer the abuse is probably too strong a word, although there was an element of abuse without doubt, but I, I just had to suffer what they did to me. And, uh, you know, they were pulling my shoulder around and and it was just agony. And why they needed to do that, because all they needed to do was put me in a scanner yeah. and see everything that was all smashed up. They didn't need a prod and poke and pull around at it. They drilled a hole in my chest to ventilate my punctured lung. And, uh, and of course, that was that was necessary, but he... he uh, they didn't put enough anaesthetic on, so when they drilled the hole, then you know that was agony on oh. top of the agonies I'd already got. No, it was, it was a horrible experience, and I was in the ta- Italian hospital, being really quite badly mistreated in lots of ways for about five or six days. I think the medical care was okay. You know, I don't complain about the medical care; it was just the the way the nurses and everybody were with me. And of course, it didn't help that there was no that there was no uh, English spoken between us. Uh, I didn't understand Italian. Uh, and also, uh, because I was still testing positive on COVID, even after six weeks, wow. they put me in the COVID ward. So all I'd got was these Italian hazmat suits. We've got, you know, like yes, yeah, into like some kind of zombie movie. Oh, it was, it was a horror. It was a horror. Yeah. Anyway, my partner and uh, my daughter managed to get me out of there and flown to Monaco after after five or six days. So that was pure, pure relief. And did you scare yourself when, you know, it, the, you know, if you were blind in one eye as well and you got a punctured lung and your breathing is laboured, you must have, like, absolutely scared yourself to death at the time. Well, you, you know, you, you sit there analysing your wounds, analysing your injuries and wondering what the consequences are going to be. You know, the, the, my head had been hit so badly, there was a big egg on my head, even though I'd got a crash helmet on, the crash helmet was smashed. My head was bulging out. My eye was blinded, and uh, you know that, that in a situation like that, it's so easy to end up with a with a uh, brain bleed, leaves you paralysed for life. I'd got the punctured lung, which was gasping for breath, and all this agony in my body. So I don't know whether I I was frightened. I'm not normally frightened about most things, really, but I was uh, in a huge amount of pain. I think the pain overcame fear because the just surviving the pain was so enormous such a challenge to just cope with the pain that i think the fear of what might be wrong with me and what might go wrong was more secondary i just needed to get to hospital and and for them to start fixing things and how soon were they able to get in touch with your partner or, you, or your daughter was it just like a mobile well i sat or? on the, i managed to crawl off the tarmac road onto a grass verge and sit there gasping for breath and I managed to get my phone out of my pocket and call my partner and say, I've, I've had a crash, I'm okay. Very okay, really. But I didn't want <laughs> to be too worried. I've had a crash, I'm okay. And uh, she said, well, how bad? she's used to me playing down all injuries. So she, she said, well, how bad is it? I said, well, I'm fine, but they're going to take me to hospital. Well, of course, as soon as I said, take me to ho- hospital, she was then panicking. Uh, I sent her a WhatsApp live location. And then um, anyway, she eventually trapped me down in one of the Florence's hospitals and and then was, of course, not allowed in. Meanwhile, my phone battery's going flat. I can barely move in the bed at all because the agony is searing through my body. And, and they've told me not to move because there's all these broken fragments of bones that could cut arteries, nerves, or whatever, you know. So they've told me not to move. But then the Italian nurses, I don't know whether they were nurses or auxiliaries or what they were, but 
What I do know is that uh, my experience in that hospital suggested that it doesn't matter whether your patient is alive or whether he's dead as long as he's clean because they mauled me all over the bed to try and get me clean. Not that I was dirty, I'd only just gone into hospital. And they flushed my body with soap and water. Then they'd got to get the sheets from under me and they wanted to pull me over onto my bad side. I couldn't move there, of course, but I couldn't move on to my good side because that was wrenching my shoulder and wrenching everything. And the doctors had said, don't move. And then I'm, then I'm lying in this pool of soapy water on the bed, wondering, wondering how the heck am I going to get through this? <laughs> what have I done? Who have I offended in life? <laughs> oh, dear. It was, it was the most wow. miserable experience of my life because I wasn't really treated with any care and compassion. So although I wouldn't complain about the medical treatment, I think that was fine. It was just the care and compassion in that hospital was dreadful. And I'm assuming you did, but maybe you haven't. I don't know. You tell me. But um, did you get back on the bike, you know, metaphorically and physically speaking? Well, it took me nine months to recover because of the colossal injuries. I mean, I did have an operation on the collarbone to stitch that all back together in Monaco. And six weeks later, that failed. So it all fell to bits again. Oh, and my right. shoulder fell to bits. So I had to have a, another operation. I left that until after we'd got a ball in London, a butterfly ball for Cordwell children. I didn't want to have an operation just before that, so I left it for three weeks. So I lost another three weeks of healing. Then, of course, it had healed, but all in the wrong place, so they had to refracture it, and, and then I had another operation. So I, I, it was not really until April, May this year, that uh, so that, that was eight months later before I was in reasonably decent shape. But even then, the healing of the shoulder wasn't 100%. So I stayed off my bike just for about another month, but... Then in May, I got back on and uh, then was full steam ahead again. Were you? And then, like, what was it like mentally doing that? Like if you came across like a hairpin corner or something like well, that? Well, I'd always been worried about downhill because I was very, very fast downhill. Not very fast uphill because I wasn't fit enough and I was too heavy. But I was very fast downhill. Too brave, really. And, uh, and there was many a time. I mean, only three weeks before I'd been doing 55 miles an hour down a very, very steep hill, round bends with a huge crosswind and a steep drop. And I remember thinking at that time, if anything explodes or goes wrong on my bike, there's a huge chance of death, but I still kept going. When I had this crash, I wasn't going particularly fast. And it happened, and it was the crash that I always dreaded. You know, my front tire exploded, but no chance to save yourself. So now I'm afraid I'm a lot more sensitive still because I always knew it could happen then when it's happened once and you've lived through that horrendous experience you're never you're not very keen to repeat that yeah it just reminded me when I when I read that and I looked at it again on your your social media on your on your Instagram but of the the professional cyclist Chris Froome and he had that crash a couple of years ago and he's never gotten back to you know that elite athlete I think he hit a wall going around a hairpin bend at like some ridiculous speed and just that challenge to get back to to where you used to be but interested to know then is there a moment in your business life that you that you felt that the business was fighting for its life i know that the story maybe with the the motorcycle company kind of resonated with me a little bit but is there any other stories that you've got that you can kind of align that with when your business was fighting for its life well there was all there was sort of almost not quite traumatic experiences, but there was a huge amount of difficult, really challenging testing times almost every day of my life, almost every single day. And I'm, I don't exaggerate when I say that. There was a huge challenge virtually every single day. But the one that really stands out was when the Motorola manager came to see me and we went out to lunch, which I rarely did, but he took me out to lunch and started. Uh, sort of talking along the lines that if anybody was going to do the distribution business that I was doing, it would be them. And I took that to mean them as in Motorola. And I felt an intense sense of threat about that because Motorola was 95% of my business. It wasn't 95% because I wanted it to be. It was 95% because Motorola was 95% of the world. You know, Motorola was the world in mobile phones in those days. And there, were, there was no alternative game in town. And uh, so when he put this shot across my bows, I, I was really quite fearful. I didn't know what my legal rights were. I didn't know whether I'd got the right to defend myself or whether they could do something to uh, seize my distribution agreement away from me. But sure enough, two weeks later, they terminated me. Three weeks or four weeks after that, 
he set up his own distributorship, not in Motorola, on his own, and with my Motorola distributorship. So he resigned from Motorola and took the distributorship that I had had with him and set up, and I'd got nothing. It all gone. 95% of my turnover went instantly. And I'd got, by that time, 50 employees. Really, were we were really doing well. We were expanding really rapidly and all of a sudden wiped out overnight. When that happens, how honest are you with the staff that work for you with what's happening? Do you keep it all inside or do you... Well, I found solutions instantly. 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 Well, I got to because yeah. we've, we've got days to survive. Mm. You know, the, the overheads were huge. It would have been irresponsible not to tell people unless I'd got a solution. And I came up with a solution instantly. I didn't know whether it would work, but it worked like a dream because previously uh, I'd turned the business around by selling equipment to service providers who couldn't get the mobile phones and who desperately needed them. And I sold the mobile phones to those service providers at a higher price than they were paying. And I sold them at my cost price, but I got a retrospective rebate. So I made the money and they got the phones that they needed to sign customers up on the airtime. So everybody was happy, even though they were paying more money than for Motorola. Motorola then shipped me all the phones because I was paying more money and I distributed them unknown to Motorola to the service providers. But every, everybody sort of won, except the Motorola again were manipulating the situation. But mm. I won out of it and the service providers kept going. So when Motorola cut my supplier agreement, I came up with the idea of reversing that process. I went to the service providers that I dealt with and said, look, what about if we pool our resources? I've got a great price from Motorola. You know, I can buy a little bit of white lies there, you know, because I hadn't got a distribution agreement then. <laughs> I couldn't possibly let them know that. And why don't we pool our buying power? You're same as we did before, but in reverse. You'll get a much better buying price because you'll increase your volume dramatically and you'll be a Motorola hero. And I'll get the equipment. You give it me at cost price and you're going to benefit throughout your whole business with all the phones that you buy. And they bought it. And two of them bought it. I ended up then buying Motorola phones from them more cheaply than I've been buying from Motorola. And that saved the day. But I wasn't going to rely on that because at the end of the day, Motorola could have found out what was going on and mm. cut off the supply straight away. So we had to keep it extremely secret, but also it wasn't a solution for the long term. So what I then did was courted Nokia and I managed to court Nokia and I got them just at the right time because they'd only got one and a half percent market share in the UK. Uh, they'd got 3,000 Citymen for sale that they'd not been able to sell. I managed to do a deal for those 3,000 Citymen at an incredibly low price, uh, less than 20% of the original price. So I bought them really cheaply. They were not very saleable, but I was, I'd got them so cheaply, I was able to push them into the market heavily. Still got the Motorola product, but was able to push these Nokias into the market really heavily. Did such a great job of that that when they launched the new Nokia 101 and they went aggressive with it, I was their main distributor, biggest volume, best buying price, and flooded the market with them. Damaged Motorola immeasurably and grew Nokia single-handedly from the 1.5% market share to the 20%. So all of a sudden, I'd turn catastrophe into even more growth, even more profit. And with a degree of security, because I was still buying the Motorola from the service providers, and I'd got this amazing relationship with Nokia, who were the new rising star, the new people on the market. Yeah, I remember I had, I had numerous Nokia phones, you know, back in the 90s and noughties. They were the phone they to were. go to. Yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah. And what phone, what brand of phone do you have today? Robert? Samsung today. Samsung today. I'm very anti-Apple because they don't pay any tax. Mm. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know for sure that Samsung do, to be honest, but I do know that Apple don't. So yeah. I will never touch Apple products by choice. Yeah. Although I do have some in my life, unfortunately, <laughs> like iPads in my, on my AV system. It's difficult not to, isn't it? It's though? difficult and, not to, but in yeah. principle, I won't buy an Apple product. Yeah, no, I, I hear that. Sorry to interrupt you listening to this podcast, but I wanted to bring to your attention something that I've personally been using for the last couple of months that helps me massively. 
So I know it can be tricky to feed yourself nutritious meals and snacks whilst on the go without breaking the bank. Many of us end up skipping meals or suppressing our hunger with coffees and sugary snacks instead of fueling ourselves to keep going throughout the day. Wholesup specially formulated their plant-based superfood meals and snacks in powder form so you can get all the nutrition you need to stay energized on the go. Providing an optimally complete meal in less than the time it takes to make a coffee, each Wholesup meal contains 31 grams of protein, 20% of your recommended daily intake of vitamins, as well as being cruelty-free and plant-based. So it ticks a lot of boxes for me, for my values, and the values that I know you as listeners have as well. And at £1.80 per meal serving or 90p a snack serving, Wholesup is the perfect alternative to sugary drinks or bars that have low nutritional value and cost double the amount. Committed to sustainability, Wholesup deliver their meals in plastic-free, recyclable containers and use compostable packaging where possible to reduce harm on the environment. The brand looks super cool too, I have to say. And not only does Wholesup taste great in both their chocolate and vanilla flavors, I've got both, I like both, but the ingredients are also responsibly sourced and the recipes are designed carefully to prevent food waste. So whilst we're all becoming busier, it's important to keep your focus on wellness and nourishing your body from the inside out. Wholesup meals are available on wholesup.com, cost as little as £1.80 a shake. So if you go to wholesup.com, that's W-H-O-L-E-S-U-P-P.com and enter the code WHOLESUP15, that's capital W-H-O-L-E-S-U-P-P-1-5, you will save 15% on your order. That's wholesup.com. Thanks for listening. Back to the podcast. And you mentioned that your story is about fighting, hardship, challenge, and trauma. And we've covered a, definitely a few of those today, but also success, wealth, and glamour. But above all, love, friendship, and trying to help people to be the best that they can be. Do you feel that, that you're the best you can be now, or do you still feel that you're still learning, you're still trying to best be the best person you can be, John? Um, if you'd have asked me that question 20 years ago, I'd say, oh no, I've got a long way to go. I've still got a long way to go in what I need to achieve to help make the world a better place. But I think in terms of my own developed thinking, I don't think I can change my thinking in any more positive way because my, my thinking has really evolved in a very, very positive way that I'm very happy with myself. You know, I've got lots of flaws and lots of faults. I'm irritable and I don't suffer fools gladly. You know, I'm, I've got a lot of major faults that, uh, but I'm never going to cure those. It's the nature of the beast. But equally, I do a huge amount of good for society and for people. And I've got people's best interests at heart. So I think I'm the sort of finished version of myself, but that doesn't mean that there's not a lot more that I can do. No. Uh, but you still learn lessons in life. You know, you handle things wrongly and you think, oh, gosh, I, I wasn't very, I could have been more patient then or I could have been kinder or, you know, there's, mm. there's always something you can do better. But, you know, we're all human and uh, you can only be uh, the best version of yourself that you can try and be. Agreed. You said those of us who have, which leads me on nicely, actually, that those of us who have yet to find philanthropy may find there is a far greater reward from it than from wealth creation. And you've said, I will give away at least half my wealth during my lifetime and after my death. And I'm reminded of the dream that you, you mentioned in the book of being driven by a chauffeur in a Rolls Royce, handing out five pound notes to the, to the poor people in your neighborhood as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course that's come true yeah. uh, in, a, in a very less precocious way, <laughs> uh, in a, a far more uh, pragmatic and sensible way. But uh, you know, I have improved a lot of lives and I'm very, very proud of that, but there's a huge amount of way to go. So it's not something I can sit back on my laurels and think I've done enough or done what I need to do. There's a huge amount more to do. And... Uh, Incidentally, I've increased the 50% to 70% now, so I'm leaving 70% of my wealth to charity or during or after my lifetime. Yeah. And my children will have the pleasure of managing that foundation to carry on the work that I'm doing. So mm. hopefully the work that I'm doing during my lifetime will continue for many, many years after in the uh, hands of my children. And I think that's one of the greatest gifts I can give them. I mean, they'll have a little bit of money as well. They won't be broke. But I think uh, the greatest gift I can give them is the gift that I have of being able to change people's lives. And I do gain 
utter spiritual satisfaction out of being able to do that. So I'm lucky, lucky that I can. And for those people that haven't found any form of philanthropy but could afford to do it, and they don't need to be rich because it could be just an act of kindness for somebody. Indeed. But yeah, I, I think anybody that. that's mm. not found it, they're missing something from the life that mm. could enhance the life because it's certainly enhanced mine, as difficult as it can be. And do you, do you feel that you have any ability to influence other people who might be in a, in a in a similar position to help other people and does it frustrate you when when they don't when they are potentially you know a lot more selfish and a lot more narrow-minded in their in their thinking well i've influenced a lot of people wealthy people already who do now do more as a consequence of my influence on them than they would have done before uh, and that that's satisfying to the second part of your question does it frustrate me that people don't do well yes it, it does because you know when somebody like uh well uh, all the you know if you take the let's not single a certain individual out but take yeah. the richest people in the world you know you, you, we could talk about bezos we could talk about individuals but when they've got such colossal fortunes they could join the giving pledge and pledge 99 percent of their wealth, not 70 or 50. It's only, the giving pledge only calls for 50. Right. But they could pledge 99% of their wealth and still end up being way richer than I am now without my pledge. And I think, well, why wouldn't they do it? You mm. know, what are they going to do with 200 billion or 300 billion? You know, what are they going to do with it? And they could be the heroes of the modern day. You know, they could be, oh, wow, Bezos and uh, other people are giving hundreds of billions away during or after the lifetime and it wouldn't make a scrap of difference to them or what, what's going on in their lives and the, or to their children's lives and they'd be heroes and i don't know why they wouldn't do that i don't know why why they're not more determined to help change the world because they just have so much money they just don't know what to do i mean even a, i mean a billion pounds is a colossal sum of money but when you've got 200 billion you know it, it's mind-blowing what else do you think or you know if you if 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 people could you know use that money for good causes what do you think you're obviously trying to do as much as you can do but what else there is there that you think could be solved that you would like to see solved in the world's problems and i know you've taken like ukrainian family in here and that's impacting the whole world with what's been going on the last well it moves a bit a little bit away from philanthropy actually but i uh, i have been completely focused on the environment for 20 years now i have a very very concerning worry that uh, the environment has already gone past a tipping point no matter what we do i don't propagate that view too much because we have to fight like fury to save the planet but what i do know is if we're not past the tipping point, we're so close that we cannot afford the pace that we're going at at the moment. We have to up that pace dramatically. Because if not, I'm certain that we will go past the tipping point if we haven't already. So, you know, the world is going to change dramatically from an environmental perspective over the next 20 years. And I'd like to see a huge amount more done. Now, if we come then to uh, Britain, I put to... Uh, the Conservative Party uh, started the pandemic, something I call called well pandemic recovery, and I yeah. call it CPR for sure, because that's what the country needed. It needed CPR, yeah. and I put a package of measures together, of which the centerpiece of that was to create an environmental friendly city. It wasn't just where you live that's environmentally friendly. The whole point of it was that it would be a tax free enterprise zone where we could try and get a brain drain from all the countries around the world to come into our huge city and set up businesses, some of them existing businesses, some of them that were going to be new technologies, developing anything that would help the environment in any way whatsoever and make it an environmentally friendly place for businesses to brainstorm with each other and like-minded people. And I called it the Silicon Valley of the environment in the UK. And I was desperately wanting that to happen. And if we'd have done that, in 10 years' time, we'd have the most phenomenal growth in GDP because we'd have this technology exportable all over the world and a massive growth in Britain's prosperity and helping to save the world as well. And I, my plan and my desires just fell on deaf ears because the politicians are just looking at the next election. And uh, But if they'd have done yeah. that, if Boris had done that two and a half years ago when I suggested it, 
the Tory party now, okay, there's a bit, there's a hell of a mess going on at this moment in time. But they could be saying to the population, but look, we've got this now. We've got these companies coming in. They're all coming into the UK. It's going to generate jobs and revenue growth and GDP. And it will take a few years for this to come through. But when it comes through, we're all going to benefit from it. And what have we got Liz Truss saying? Well, we'll cut the rate of top rate of income tax from 45 pence to 40 pence, the most ludicrous notion I've ever heard in my life. Do you think because they are short sighted, as you say, they're just looking at, you know, their next their next elections, do you think but they're not doing a very good job of that either, are they? <laughs> they're not doing a good job of that either. But do you almost think those words and, and that vision that you have would be, you know, better used speaking to those who actually share that vision, who might have more of a long term view, be that you know, uh, a Scandinavian country or, or, or be that a Middle Eastern country, for example, when you see the rate of change that they're able to to make. And Well, I've never thought about that, and you're possibly right, but the thing is I'm patriotic. I want Britain to be great. I want to be Great Britain. I want to help my country to be the very, very best that it can be. I don't want to move to Monaco out of disgust with Britain. And at the moment, I am very disappointed in Britain. You know, I'm very disappointed. Having said which, let's bring some balance to that because I'm extremely proud of Boris's leadership on the Ukraine situation. You know, uh, we have really set the bar for all of the nations in supporting Ukraine, supporting the Ukrainian people. And I'm very proud of his stance on that, proud of Britain's stance on it. And that is continuing under Liz Truss. It's something to be very proud of. And there's only, you know, Britain and America who truly have done that. Look at the Germans some time ago yeah. said, so well, we'll send some crash helmets. And only today there was a report that they promised them some special, um, I think, anti, anti-missile technology. Mm. They never delivered it. You know, mm. I, don't, I don't know what the Germans are doing. No. You know, the most powerful nation in Europe and they're not doing the bit at all. No, you know, it's, it's a disgrace. You know, it's, yeah. it is utterly disgraceful. So I am very proud of Britain still. I'm proud of a lot of what we stand for. I just wish the Tories had grabbed the opportunity to make Britain greater still and to keep Britain great and to grow our GDP so that the poorer members of society can be better looked after. And we haven't lost that opportunity yet, but I think the trouble is the embattled government now are in such a mess that I can't see them doing anything that would be productive like that. <laughs> no, likewise. And you, you mentioned in, in your book that a lot of the beliefs and motivations that, that you have today are a direct result of what you learned from your grandmother. Do you mind telling us a little bit about her, what kind of character well, she was? Uh, yeah, she was quite a... Quite a uh, what would I, would I describe grandma? I mean, she died when I was 11, but she was... Um, she was kind to some people, angry with others, dominant. She was a proper matriarch mm. character, a proper matriarch. You know, she ruled the roost. That comes across in the book very strongly. Ruled yeah. it with my mother. Was not very good with my mother at all. And um, But she t- filled my head full of stories of uh, wealthy Cordwells and ancestry and success. And that. I think there's definitely an element of where I am today that, was as a result perhaps of being inspired by my grandmother. Mm. I didn't realize that at the time. I just thought how wonderful it would be to be successful like my ancestors were. And um, so I, I think it did, It did. I think, although I didn't recognize it at the time properly, I think it did probably fuel some ambition in me. And she used to have people come in with ulcerated legs and all sorts of things and massage the legs and she could fix these ulcers that the doctors had failed with for months and the ulcer had got bigger and bigger. She'd take over it and have people come in and through the door and she'd massage them with this special ointment she made. So I think, you know, in spite of the fact that I've said she was quite unkind in some ways, and she was, she'd also got a big kindness in her heart as well, mm-hmm. as well as. And I think perhaps that influenced me as well. I don't really know. You know, it's very difficult to know. It's... Uh, yeah, when you're yeah. that age, especially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back. I think all of this did have an impression on me to some extent, but I could never remember a, a particular light bulb moment when Grandma massaging old ladies' legs to get rid of the ulcers told me that I needed to be kind to people in the future. And you, you dedicate the book um, to your mother, who you say is the most inspiring person that you've ever known, and. You must have met quite a few over your lifetime, so that's quite a strong thing to say. Yes, but it was a different form of inspiration. I mean, my mother, commercially, non-inspiration at all. 
she was the most anti-capitalist you'd ever... She wasn't communist, but she was anti-capitalist. She hated that dirty green stuff, that money. You know, she didn't (laughs) like the thought of money. I remember going to Africa and having a bit of fun in a village. I mean, this was probably a bit harsh on me, but it didn't turn out to be harsh because I'd got all these African uh, locals trying to sell me tablecloths that they'd made. And for a bit of fun, I had a reverse auction. You know, we started off at £20 or whatever, and then it was £18, £17, £16. And I got it down to a very, very low price. And my mother's frowning at me and very disappointed in me. So, of course, I gave them the original asking price. I just had a bit of fun and sport. And then the one that I ended up getting the cheapest price from, I gave the full price back again. But my mother, my mother would have never allowed me to get away with anything like that. You know, she was very very much look after the poor people, look after people, be kind, be considerate, and so on. But why I said she was inspirational was because when she had a stroke and she was 80 years old, she then lost her speech, she was paralyzed down on one side and a bit of a mess. But she became, she deteriorated even further, a lot further. She ended up with cancer, she ended up face cancer, head cancer, mm-hmm. diabetes, heart problems, uh, incontinence. She was lying in bed in, a, in what was a real mess. Fortunately, we had a lovely carer, Pam, who looked after her and uh, became almost like a daughter to her. So that all worked out really well. But my mother never complained. You know, mm-hmm. we'd go and see her all <laughs> beaming with smiles. We'd have a laugh and a joke. You know, she couldn't speak, but we could interact with each other. And she was fully mentally capable. Uh, we'd have a laugh and a joke. We'd watch, uh, we would watch Murder, She Wrote. And she's just died, hasn't she, Angela Lansbury? We'd watch Murder, She Wrote every night, every night that I'd visit her. And she'd be full of humor, full of humility, full of fun, never feeling sorry for herself. And that's why I say she was inspirational, because she was like some of the kids we help in Cordwell Children who just get on with life and they're proper soldiers, you know, they get on with life and they have a joy of what they do have rather than like most of us worrying about what we don't have. Very true. And speaking of soldiers, you say in the book about your father, thank you, dad, for every life lesson you taught me. You made me a better man. It sounds like reading the book, you had a very challenging relationship with your father, but that if you learn to to let all of that resentment go that you, you felt towards him, does yeah. that take a long time? No, not really. I I mean, I, I resented the way he treated my mother after he'd had his stroke and the way he made her life really bad. So there was a resentment there, but I, I very quickly lose any sense of resentment or vengeance with anybody. You know, it's, it's only going to eat yourself up and I'm lucky that I'll let it go. You know, it does. It's not a con- conscious decision. It just goes, disappears from my brain. And, uh, you know, and, and I genuinely mean thank you, Dad, because all the bad lessons that he taught me taught me how not to be. You know, I didn't get the love from him that I probably ought to have had. And I understood that I'd got to really show my children total security and total love. And I've done that to the best of my ability. It's natural, actually. It's a natural thing, but but it's reinforced by the negative lessons of my father. Um, so and my father was uh, terrified of investment in anything. You know, he would never go into business, although he had the capability. He didn't believe in borrowing any money. I mean, almost everything that my father stood for, I reversed mm-hmm. and became completely different. So he he taught me how not to be in life. And that was a, just as positive a lesson as if he'd probably more positive teaching me how not to be than teaching me how to be. And one of the themes that come out in your book, which I really enjoyed, by the way, is that you talk a lot about kindness. And we've talked about it again today, that it should be the go to behavior. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that as we kind of come to a close? Yeah, I've done lots of uh, TV interviews and programs and so on where we've talked about racism or talked about uh, bullying and so on and so forth. And the thing I always come back to is that we don't need to worry about racism. We don't need to worry about the way people treat each other. What we need is to teach kindness. Because if we taught kindness in school and we were able to change children's minds at an early age, that kindness, whatever it was to do, whether it was to do with race, religion, creed, people with strange visual impairments or people with disabilities if we could train people from an early age to be kind and you'll never do that completely of course because the human race is fundamentally not very kind in lots of areas witness all the things going on in the world horrendous human beings can be horrendous as we know and always have been but if we teach kindness we could definitely improve the philosophy in life to an extent 
And especially for those kids that at home have got parents that are bad examples and are not kind or even worse, that are pretty evil or, or mm. bad people. At least those children then would get this kindness taught at school. And there could be many, many examples of this that could be done in a very fascinating and interesting way that enable kids to see how they needed to behave now and in the future for the rest of their lives. Yeah, no, it really resonates. Like we've got two teenage girls and like the youngest is like naturally born with that gene, whereas the, the eldest who's 15 constantly trying to, you know, try And I think it's like a, almost like a lack of empathy a lot yeah. of the time as well. And I just think, like you say, if something like that was actually talked about openly in school, it, it wouldn't change everybody, but it would make a huge amount of difference. difference yeah. It would know. definitely make a difference. And I don't mm. know why we haven't done it. I mean, it's something I've been talking about for years now. And I don't know why we haven't done it in school, because you can use it as such an educational tool. And you can use it to talk about autistic kids and kids with muscular difficulties, cerebral palsy and so on. And don't look at these kids as uh, the weird or the something, you know, something to be bullied or taken the mickey out of. Look at it that these kids, these people have got challenges and you need to understand those challenges. But if we're not told this as a young kid, and somebody's behavior is a bit strange, let's say, because they've got fairly mild autism and they've got a bit of a strange behavior, we would naturally instinctively as kids see them as a bit weird, yeah. you know, and maybe a target for being bullied. But if it's explained to you that these children have got these issues going on that they can't help, can't do anything about, it, it allows you to make a decision to be more sympathetic and, and to be kinder to them. I think that's a, it's a great point to, to finish up on, John. And I know that the, the proceeds of your book are going to go to your charities. What action would you then like people to take after reading your book? Have you thought about that? I haven't, but what I, what I do hope is that over the months that come, people will email me or send me messages and say that in some small way or hopefully a larger way that reading the book inspired them to be able to carry on or survive or do better and that there was a real positive change in their life. And if I achieve that, I've achieved everything I want to achieve. I love that. And look, you're, you're always busy helping other people, but for people listening to this podcast, which again is listened to in 160 countries around the world, what can people do for you? Well, they, they of course could contribute to Cordwell Children. It's very easy to do so. You just go straight onto the website, put in Cordwell Children and all come up. My name will come up. They can help me in any any of my endeavours to try and make the world a better place than it is now. Perfect. John Cordwell, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you found value in this free podcast, all I ask is that you tell somebody else about it. You don't have to leave a review or write a post on social tagging me in the screw it, just do it hashtag. But if you do, I promise to give you a shout out on a future episode and you have my eternal thanks. I'm at Alex Chisnell on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook, plus at Alexander Chisnell on Instagram. Alongside the Screw It, Just Do It Facebook page, this houses the Screw It, Just Do It community and has the most up-to-date information on all things Screw It, Just Do It, including all of our live events. I love hearing from you. If you either message me on LinkedIn or email alex at screwitjustdoit.org, I promise to reply. Just give me a little time.